0: I hope as you think about the words we've just sung, as well as many of the words we've said this morning and heard this morning, there's an intentional theme and focus on the extent of God's goodness and His blessings to us. And that's what I want to be in our mind as we come to God's Word this morning. And as we do, I invite you to open to Mark chapter 14. Now, if you were with us last week, you know that I broke ranks a little bit last week and swapped the order of our passages so that we could look at Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper in preparation for coming to the table last week. But this week, we're returning to the first 11 verses of Mark 14. Now, you might also remember, if you were with us last week, I mentioned that chapter 14 really marks a distinct shift in Mark's narrative. We've heard Jesus announce that he's going to die ever since Mark chapter 8, We've seen Jesus' conflict with the religious authorities coming to a head since chapter 12. But here in chapter 14, we officially begin the narrative of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. And we read how that all begins to come to pass in our passage this morning. So if you would follow with me as we read Mark 14, 1 through 11. This is God's Word. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Father, I pray that you would speak to us by your spirit through this passage this morning. That we would hear this not as just another passage of your word, but that we would hear this example of honoring Christ and that you would work in our hearts and draw us to Christ as well. We pray in his name. Amen. Now, we know that people will not always agree about various issues. We know that people might have different responses uh, to a, an event or, or an issue, and, and that's not surprising to us. But every once in a while, we witness starkly different responses to the same thing right next to each other in a way that is either uh, humorous or, or significant. A few weeks ago, our family took a trip to New York City, and as part of our trip, we gave each uh, portion of our family uh, a choice in what they would like to do. So the the girls in our family chose to go to the American Girl Place, and uh, the boys in our family chose to go to the Museum of Math, and Kate and I chose to go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, March to the Chagrin of Our Children, I think. Well, we were walking through the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and we were on our way up through the centuries, and we came to the room with the 20th century modern art in it. And and we walked into a room, and there was a a woman probably in her late 20s or early 30s who was sitting on a bench just looking at staring at absorbed in a big painting on the wall and you could tell from her posture just her interest her 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 reflection her absorption in the artist's work and i was kind of observing this woman and a couple of my kids came up and they said dad why is that painting even in a museum (laughs) they said any five-year-old with their finger painting could do that I said, if I paint some red and yellow lines, can I get a million dollars for the painting too? And I just had to laugh at the difference between the woman and her response and my kids and their response to this piece of modern art. But in our passage this morning, Mark is drawing our attention to two starkly different responses to the same person at the same time. There's little humor in this contrast, but there is tremendous significance And that's the main point I want us to see this morning from this passage, the stark difference between these two responses to Jesus and the attitude that they each reveal. And so we'll look at each, but we'll start with the response of Judas. The chapter opens by telling us that it was two days before the Passover. Now, you'll remember that the Passover lamb would have been killed on Thursday and the Passover feast would have happened in the evening after sundown on Thursday. And you might remember that in first century Israel, a new day started at sundown. And so if you count two days back from the evening of Thursday, it's daytime on Wednesday. And here on Wednesday, the chief priests and the scribes have gathered for a strategy session. And they've gathered for a strategy session because the day before was Tuesday, and you remember they had this great plan to trap Jesus in his words, and they would planted some covert operatives to ask questions, but their plan had utterly failed. The questions had not only not humiliated Jesus, they'd actually only given greater interest among the people in his teaching. And so they gather here together on Wednesday and the chief priests and scribes in this meeting reach a definite conclusion. And their definite conclusion is that Jesus has to die. But having come to this conclusion, they don't know how they're going to accomplish it yet. They can't just go out in the middle of the Passover on their lunch break and arrest Jesus when all of Israel is gathered around and listening to Him and admiring Him and and excited about Him. No, it's going to have to be done by stealth, the text tells us, and likely after the feast in order to avoid a big political mess. But unbeknownst to the Jewish leaders, God had other plans. See, they didn't realize that it was God's plan for Jesus to die, and they also didn't realize that it was God's plan for Jesus to die during the feast. And it was God's plan for Jesus to die during the feast so that all Israel would be right there in Jerusalem to witness it and to witness to the fulfillment of God's promises in Scripture. And it was God's plan for, for this to happen during the feast so that Jesus might be killed as the final and perfect Passover lamb whose blood was shed that God might pass over our sins and covenant with us as His people. And so in God's plan, just as the chief priests and the scribes are at a standstill in their strategy session, Judas shows up and offers to betray Jesus to them. That was unexpected. It was unexpected for the religious leaders who certainly would not have expected one of the 12 closest of Jesus' associates to betray him. It was also a shock to the disciples themselves based on their response to Jesus' announcement that one of them would betray him. But this was exactly what the religious leaders needed, and it changed their focus. Because if one of Jesus' 12 disciples would betray him, now they had a way to take him by stealth. Now they had a way to do what they wanted to do without a big political mess. And so they were glad. And it says they quickly came to an agreement with Judas offering to pay him money. Now, Matthew in his gospel tells us that Judas agreed to betray uh, Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, just as pieces of silver, we're not exactly sure what that piece of silver was. And so there's a large disagreement about how much these 30 pieces of silver were actually worth. But the general consensus is that it was probably a couple of months' wages for a laborer. So it's not a small sum of money in that sense, but it is a pretty paltry sum for which to betray your companion and your teacher to death. Of course, whatever the silver coins were worth, there's no doubt that 30 pieces of silver perfectly fulfills God's promises in Scripture. We talked last week about how the Psalms predict Jesus being betrayed by a companion, one who even shared the bread with him. But you might also think of Zechariah chapter 11 where Zechariah was told to act prophetically and to become a shepherd over a flock doomed to slaughter. But the flock doomed to slaughter detested him and rejected him as their shepherd. And they paid him off to leave them alone. And the amount that they paid him off, the value they put on his shepherding was 30 pieces of silver. And so again, we see these passages in the Old Testament, which come to fulfillment in Jesus' life. But here we have Judas with the money jingling in his pocket, agreeing to betray him and looking for an opportunity. And that's the first unexpected response to Jesus. But right smack in the middle of the story, you notice how Mark, in telling the story about Judas agreeing to betray him, actually interrupts the story and inserts another story in the middle a story of a woman who anoints Jesus with expensive ointment. Let's turn our attention now to this second unexpected response to Jesus. As we read this story, I need to explain a few things about the story up front because there's some ambiguity. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, each relate a story of a woman anointing Jesus with oil from an alabaster flask. It's clear that Matthew and Mark are sharing the same story, but there are some different details in Luke and John, and so the question is, are there different events that the Gospels are narrating, or are they giving different perspectives on the same event? After some study, I would agree with the, the majority opinion. I think Luke, in his Gospel, is relating an entirely different event. In Luke chapter 7, there's a woman who anoints Jesus from an alabaster flask, but... The time frame in Jesus' ministry is different. The location in Israel is different. The host of the dinner is different. The manner of the anointing is different. The motive of the anointing is different. And Jesus' response is different. And so I think when we look at this, we say, that is an event that happened earlier in Jesus' ministry that makes perfect sense in that context. In John chapter 12, though, I think we're getting another account of the same event. Once again, it happens in the week leading up to Jesus' death, and it shares almost all of the details. But the reason there's some question is there's two details that appear to be different in John. John 12 says that the anointing happened six days before the Passover, and you notice that Mark 14 opens saying it was two days before the Passover. And and so the question is, if this is the same event, is that a a contradiction? But I don't think it is. You'll notice that verse 3 here just generally says, while he was at Bethany, he was at the house of Simon. And I tend to think that this event actually happened earlier in the week, six days before the Passover, as John indicates. But Mark puts the story here because it helps explain why in the world Judas would betray Jesus. Because we learn in John that it was primarily Judas who critiqued this woman, and it was primarily Uh, Jesus' rebuke primarily landed on Judas. And so I think this story happens earlier in the week. It's not a contradiction, but Mark puts it here to explain Judas' betrayal, which then he goes back to conclude. The other difference is that Mark says the woman anointed Jesus' head, while John says she anointed his feet. But we learn from John that this alabaster flask would have contained about 12 ounces of of perfumed oil. That's a large amount. And both accounts tell us she dumped the entire thing out on Jesus. And so most people think she isn't just dumping it all on his head, it's covering his body, his feet as well. And John has his reasons for emphasizing the feet. Mark has reasons for emphasizing the head. But all that to say, I think it's the same event and there's no contradiction in the details. Rather, the two help us get a fuller picture of what happened. Assuming that's correct, now let's dig in here. John tells us when Jesus arrived in Bethany, they hosted a dinner for him. And the host was Simon the leper. Now Simon has to be a healed leper because if he was actively leprous, he couldn't host a social gathering. And some wonder maybe, maybe he was even a leper who was healed by Jesus. And that's, that's possible, though we don't know for sure. John tells us that the recently raised from the dead Lazarus. Remember, Bethany was the hometown of Lazarus. So Lazarus was here at the feast, John tells us. So was Martha. And Martha, John tells us, was busy serving the dinner and getting the food out and taking care of all the details. And if you remember in your minds, there's some other places in the gospel Martha's mentioned and it seems like she's always serving and taking care of the details. But then there was Mary. And John tells us it was Mary who came in with an alabaster flask of pure nard. And in verse 3, Mark piles up words to emphasize how valuable this ointment was. It was kept in an alabaster flask which had value in and of itself, not like the common clay pottery around the house. It was pure nard. And Mark says it was very expensive. In fact, the disciples will assess its worth at more than 300 denarii. That's more than an entire year's wages for a laborer at that time. Now, an item of this value may well have been passed down in the family, almost like a a family heirloom or treasured possession of the family because so few women would have been able to afford something like this. But even if the family was wealthy enough to afford it, it would have been an item of significant value given its expense. But having recognized the value of the ointment, Mark then tells us about the totality of Mary's gift. Now, most of you probably know how perfume or essential oils are typically used. You, you put a little dot here or a, a little spray there. You don't typically dump it out in soda can quantities. And yet that's what Mary does. In fact, Mark tells us when she went to use it, instead of you know, uncapping the flask or pointing out, she broke the flask. And it was Mary saying, I'm not keeping any of this there's no reason for me to hold on to this flask or, because I am going to pour it all out. I am not holding any of it back. And I love that picture of her breaking the flask to emphasize that she is giving it all right now to Jesus. She poured it all out and John tells us that the house was just filled with the fragrance of this perfume oil. This was an act of unexpected, extravagant, unbounded generosity as she poured out this treasure on Jesus to honor her Savior whom she loved. Now, the people around her were shocked by this, but they weren't just shocked. You see, they immediately start to criticize her. It says that they were filled with indignation and they scolded her but this is not a scolding like an, an older bossy sibling might like scold a younger child or something like this. Indignation is the word for a bull whose nostrils flare in anger at a threat. They are angry at this and angry at Mary for what they see as a ridiculous and inappropriate waste. Their first critique is that she has wasted this by dumping it all out. Now, maybe you've said something similar if you've ever taught a toddler how to blow bubbles. You ever taught a toddler how to blow bubbles and you'd put the wand in and take it out and this tiny bit of soap on there and you blow these bubbles and the toddler is so excited, they just want more. But of course, they don't know how how it works and they're faster than you are. You don't anticipate it. And before you know it, they grab the bubbles and dump them all out on the ground. And you think, well, that was a waste. No more bubbles now. The whole thing was just dumped out on the ground. And I think that's, that's a very tiny and fortunately much less expensive example of what the disciples are thinking here. Pour out a few drops of this on Jesus, Mary. Absolutely. That would be a way to honor Him. But break the flask and dump it all out? That is inexcusable waste. And then there's, there's an, another layer to this critique This could have been sold, they say, for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Now, John in his gospel tells us that it was primarily Judas who was issuing this critique, although Matthew and Mark say that some of the other disciples seem to have joined in their critique. But John also tells us that Judas didn't actually care a whit for the poor. But Judas kept the money bag and he'd set up a direct wire from the money bag to his bank account so he could help himself whenever he wanted to. And so he brings out this critique. Why wasn't this given to the poor? And I'm sure it sounded like a good and reasonable critique. Maybe it sounds like uh, when we consider food waste in the United States. You know, recent statistics say that we uh, waste or throw out over 100 billion pounds of food, or the half a trillion dollars from restaurants and kitchens and, and grocery stores every year. And we think, with all the hungry people in the world, what a waste! How could that not have been used for those who are hungry? And, and I think that gives you a little window into the second angle of the criticism here. Mary, if you've really decided you don't want to hold on to this perfume. Don't just dump it all out on the ground. Sell it and use the money to help the poor. You could have helped so many. Don't dump it all out in one fell swoop. And So you hear the criticism that this was a waste from those around her. But do you notice that Jesus doesn't let the criticism go unchecked? Jesus is like a teacher on the playground at school who steps in front of a bully and tells him off. He says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. In fact, he goes on to affirm what she's done with a vehemence that's striking. He says, truly I say to you. That's that phrase, like verily I tell you, truly I say to you. It's the kind of thing Jesus says when he wants to emphasize something important and true. He says, truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Talk about a high praise for the gift of unrestrained generosity that was a suitable response to such a Savior. Jesus also refutes the argument that this could have been given to the poor. He says, the poor you always have with you, and you can do good for them whenever you want, but you will not always have me. Now I want you to note, it is very important for us to recognize, this is was not at all minimizing that importance of helping the poor, nor was it trying to say, well, as long as you love Jesus, you don't have to help the poor. That is not at all what it's saying. It's saying at this moment in history, Jesus stood in their midst. And at this moment in history, Jesus, who was more valuable, of greater worth than anyone else ever, was standing right there. And it was appropriate for Mary to honor and show her love for Jesus. But for the rest of history, and for us now, that doesn't at all undermine the commands of Scripture to help the poor. That is something that Scripture continues to command. So Jesus clarifies what she has done and defends her again. The poor, they would have opportunity to help again. For now, Jesus is the highest good. And apparently, Mary alone has perceived that. Before we leave the details of this story. Can I draw your attention to what I think is a close parallel between what Mary has done here and what another woman did just over a chapter ago? At the end of chapter 12, that widow who dropped two copper coins into the offering box, we talked about it just a couple of weeks ago. On the surface, it's hard to imagine a greater difference between these two gifts. One woman dropped in a grand total of one penny's worth. Another gave a gift worth more than an entire year's wages. One woman gave a routine gift in the offering box at the temple. Another broke a treasured possession in an alabaster flask. But would you note that both received the same commendation from Jesus? To the woman who gave her two copper coins, Jesus says, she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. She gave everything she could. In defense of Mary, Jesus says, she has done what she could. Mary couldn't save Jesus from what was to come, but she has given freely, abundantly from what she had to do what she could in honor of him, just like the poor widow. And I love the way one commentator summarized it. He he put it this way. He said, when one acts with this kind of motive and intent, no gift, not even a mere two copper coins is meaningless. And no gift, even a year's salary is wasted when it is given to Jesus. What a beautiful reminder that the key here is not the world's dollar value they assign on it but the extent of our heart given completely to Jesus so that whatever we have, we pour out for Him. So we come to the end of this passage and we stand face to face with a striking contrast between these two unexpected responses to Jesus. One response was unexpected because of the extent of a woman's unfettered generosity to her Savior. The other response was unexpected because of the depth of its unrestrained self-interest and selfishness. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? Jesus, or Judas asked. One valued Jesus as worthy of the greatest gift she could give. The other valued Jesus as worth betraying for 30 silver coins. But the beauty of the first response and the bald-faced betrayal of the second assured that both of them would be told wherever the gospel was proclaimed throughout the world. Now, I hope in these last minutes that we can take a minute to reflect on these examples. On the one hand, I hope we might ask ourselves what we're willing to give up Jesus for. Maybe it's money, 30 coins of silver. Maybe it's some other pleasure or opportunity. Maybe it's just the freedom or the independence to feel like I can do whatever I want without... God's restriction. But I really want to focus on Mary's example because her example has been on my mind all week long. Here is a woman who realized all that Jesus had done for her. Here is a woman who realized how much Jesus was worthy of. In fact, she seems to be the only one in the room at the time who realized how worthy he was. But will you notice that the only reason we know what Mary thought of Jesus was by her actions. Her life showed the fruit of her heart. The proof was in the pudding, if you will, of what she did that showed us what she thought of Jesus. And the question I've been asking myself all week long is what does my life tell me about the value that I place on Jesus, on who he is, and what he's worthy of, and all that he's done for me? How highly do my thoughts and my actions indicate that I value Jesus compared to other things in life? And I think if I'm honest with myself, I think I would have to say that while I love Jesus, my zeal to give, to break the alabaster flask, if you will, is regularly checked and restrained by other material wants or future fears of financial security or other things in front of me. And as I was thinking about this, I was struck again by C.S. Lewis's comments in Mere Christianity on generosity and giving. Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, Lewis said, If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income level as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things in this world that we should like to do or have and cannot do or have because our charitable expenditure for the Lord excludes them. We just pause and think about that for a minute. His point is not that Jesus is saying, he's not saying Jesus doesn't want us to have this, Jesus doesn't want us to have that, not at all. He's saying if Jesus is really of greater worth to us than anything else in the world, shouldn't we instinctively, being ready and willing to give to him and pour out ourselves and our money for him to the exclusion of things of this world? because he is more valuable to us than they are and and he's saying if we use our money in roughly the same ways as those with the same income level as we have but who don't know jesus isn't there a problem there isn't that saying something about our hearts And of course, there's wisdom questions here. We're not to burn out or give foolishly so that we become a burden on others. We're not to give such that we can't fulfill responsibilities God has called us to give. But for me, and I would guess most of us, that's not our greater temptation. And the question is, do we have Mary's heart? And as I was thinking about that, I was struck also by J.C. Ryle's challenge. He wrote this, a cold heart makes a slow hand. A cold heart makes a slow hand. But if a man once understands the sinfulness of sin and the mercy of Christ in dying for him, he will never think that anything is too good or too costly to give to Christ. He will rather feel, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? And that's really the crux of the matter, isn't it? that my sin is a serious offense to the holiness and the majesty of God, and that I am destined for eternity to be separated from him and from everything that is good and beautiful, a recipient of his just punishment for my sin against him because I wanted to live for myself rather than in submission to him. But that while I was still a sinner in that rebellion against him, God sent his son Jesus to die for me to take away this eternal punishment and to offer me in its place forgiveness of sin and acceptance in his sight and adoption as his child and, an, and a fellow heir of His eternal kingdom of glory and righteousness as a new creation by His Spirit, if I would repent of sin and follow Christ in faith, all that He has given us. And in light of such a salvation, nothing on this earth could possibly be too good or too costly to give to Him. That's the example that Mary sets for us in this passage. That's the example I want to meditate on and grow to imitate more and more in my own life. And I pray that that would be a desire of all of us as a congregation to meditate on and imitate more and more because we have such a Savior. Let's pray. Father, you've given us this example of a godly woman, a godly woman who did not hold back, who was unrestrained, And her flask breaking gift to her Savior. A gift that didn't earn anything, wasn't significant because she was so great. It was a gift that recognized how great a Savior she had and poured out an expression of her value and her thanks to Him. Father, would you work that in our hearts and lives? Would our hearts and lives and our words and our actions demonstrate such a value on Jesus? I pray this in his name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, Contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.